Welcome to the Bad Vibes Club podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks for everyone's kind comments on the previous podcast on Erica Scorty and Joe Fletcher or and Sam Venables. It's been really nice to hear people's reactions to that. This podcast is the first podcast to be done by Beth Bramich. Hi, Beth. Hello. So Beth is going to help me curate some of the Bad Vibes Club program later in the year and is also taking over some of these podcasts with interviews with artists that she selected and, and gone out and spoken to. So Beth, maybe I'll just kind of let you introduce who you spoke with and what you spoke about and then and then we'll hear from you at the end of the episode as well. Okay. Um, I spoke to the artist Sophie Mallet in her studio um, and we spoke a little bit about her practice, including work she makes on her own uh, collaborative projects she's got going on the moment. So her collaboration with Marie Toseland as SMT and with Paul Mahiki. Sophie was an Open School East associate a few years ago and some of her relationships with these artists came out of that time. To start the interview, we talked about her radio show on Resonance FM, Sonic Blind Dates. Well, Sonic Blind Dates was kind of like a side hustle. From the beginning, it wasn't ever intended to be like a part of my practice, but it came out of, I guess, some pretty frustrating experience that had happened over years Mm. of people asserting their opinions and tastes, not necessarily just on me, but just that's the way that people communicate all of the time about what they know. It's like, oh, this is, you haven't listened to this. Like there's a real kind of like ego that's attached to what you know what you listen to, what you're familiar with and what you like. And before I did any um, kind of arts practice, I worked in radio when I was young and there was a real ego about like what you played, like you wanted what you played to somehow reflect generously upon the person you are and the tastes you have. And I always felt a bit uncomfortable about that because it's essentially using other people's music as a vehicle for your own, you know, like whatever that is, like um, sense of self. So... I'd just come out of a sound arts MA, which was full of dudes being like, this is seminal. And, you know, like, it's not that it's untrue, but it's 2017 now. Like, seminal means so many things to so many different people. So Sonic Blind Dates was just a super simple gesture to try and make a space for myself and for others to embrace this idea of not knowing, of unknowing, of not having to have any of your ego attached to what you're listening to. And I try and kind of make that spill out into the other work that I do, but in terms of Sonic Blind Dates, it's just me for an hour in the studio playing records that I've never heard before. If anyone's going to know anything about them, hopefully it's the listener, but it's all so about like sharing a listening experience, you know, different locations, but you're kind of both in that shared listening experience together. So that's... That's the genesis. Yeah. I was also thinking about like how it, when you say it kind of feeds into what you do more generally, there's a kind of, I would say, um, a generosity to the idea that you kind of, you're putting music out there that people might not have heard before. There's like a real variety of records and it sort of feels like very much that you share something with the audience. And then also that you're very collaborative. Like I've, um, seen you take on different kinds of collaborations and you seem to bring a lot of energy to them but you don't seem to shape them they don't seem to be exactly carbon copies of what you do you seem to kind of um find middle ground with people very easily it may be could you maybe talk about some of your collaborations i can that's a nice thing to say about my work and my approach first of all um yeah i suppose that's something I've been thinking about recently, but there is like when I first started making art and I don't come from like, I didn't know that art was a thing that I could do, you know, when I was young, like no one in my, like it was just, that was like not part of a possibility for me. So I came to art really late. And for me, it was a space to do things that I just didn't have space to do in my life. Like it really was like a bit of a savior. I was like, this is cool. This is somewhere where I can think about things. I can engage with people. But for me, in the way that I think about things, like I, I don't trust my own experience enough to kind of go off that. It's not, I don't find that interesting enough. So the way that I try and work is by like introducing other perspectives into what I'm interested in and trying to work out those things together. So that's, I guess, you know, broad brushstrokes, that's my approach. Like if I'm struggling with something, if I'm trying to think through something, 
I don't feel like my one way of dealing through that is going to be at all interesting to me. So I like that to be kind of a shared experience. So, which is not to say I can't be like a hermit and work in my studio for like months at a time. I also really enjoy that mode of working as well. But so some of my collaborations, um, the long form one is working with Marie Tosland, who I met at Open School East. And we have a really different approach in our individual practices, but there's something in this collaboration that we've made called SMT where we can, I don't know, again, it just creates a space. It has different rules. We can do different things. You know, I come with kind of like my interest of how sound can shape spaces, like a little bit of kind of I'm really interested in architecture and sound, and she's really interested in like internal occupations of sound and how sound kind of plays out within the body. And somehow SMT, when we work together, we do things that are completely different to what we do in our individual practices. Um, another person that I've worked with a lot is Paul Mahecki, who I share this studio with. And last year we were invited by the Turner in Margate to kind of respond to a specific event, which was essentially all about trauma at sea, but specifically related to black bodies. And from there we got interested in, like, water, actually, and through some really kind of, like, <laughs> weird Facebook, like, comment searching, found this amazing text on hydrofeminism that started to inform what we were doing. We started working together. It was really lovely because we've known each other for ages, but we haven't actually had that formal structure to work in. It was really easy. It was really nice. And then he had a show earlier this year and asked me to compose the sound for it, and I did that. So, I mean, that's less of a collaboration and more kind of working together, but it was a nice vibe. And then... I guess more generally, if I'm doing a project, I'll invite other artists or other people to feed into it in terms of like research or just the way that I make or events, you know. I'd say with both of those relationships, I'd also think in terms of the bodily and the the sensual, I think comes across in both of their practice. I think there's something, you know, fairly sexy about what Marie and um, Paul do. Mm. Um, and I think there's something about the... I think that in some ways it almost feels like you provide a structure or you create like a kind of repeated rhythm to some of the things I've seen them do recently. So when Paul is dancing, I know that you made soundtracks to accompany his dancing. I know with um, some of the things I've seen you doing with Maritos and like they're very out there. They're very not what you two would do individually, but there's this really strong like kind of, there was one I saw where you were, she was drumming and mm. you were making, you were doing the vocals, I think, or was she vocalising as well? But it just felt very much more this kind of in the way that I think as I understand it that you tweaked the sound or worked with the sound and how it was documented it felt like it took up everything I've seen of her work is very much within her you know it's it kind of fits within the body frame and this felt like it took over space and it had this kind of pounding rhythm to it that I felt like came from you and what I've seen of your work but mm. I might be wrong um I know the work that you're talking about. You're talking about the stuff that we did um, in Birmingham mm. as part of the performances publishing thing, and that was called Horrid Little Hands. And I don't think it necessarily came from either one of us. I think that's what's really nice about working with other people. It's not kind of like one thing comes from one person and one thing comes from another, but something happens in between mm. and you generate this thing. Yeah. Like, you know, it's kind of like the magic that happens between people. It's like it's somewhere like in between rather than like rooted in each of your own bodies. Mm. But both of us at that time were really, I mean, it was more a response to um, the way that we were getting asked to do things and to performing on command. And we really wanted to reclaim back this space mm. and absolutely occupy it from, like, go to woe. So it was really loud. It was really kind of, like, bombastic and it instantly occupied the entire space mm. of um, Eastside, which is where we performed it. Um, and we did that a couple of times, which is a really nice and generous mm. offer from Performances Publishing. They, the whole point that they did with all of the artists that they asked to um, participate in that project, it was called Take One, Take Two, Take Three. But the idea was to make a work, make a performance, it's streamed live, you're performing to the audience at Eastside, but you're also performing virtually online. And then think about it and rework it. And that is such a generous offer. Yeah. Like in terms of like art, that just seems like, 
you know, everything is so climactic and then it's over and then you move on to the next thing. So in terms of time, that was a really interesting process for SMT. But yeah, it was, it was very different. And then it's actually quite different from the other work that SMT have done together because that has been like a lot more, I guess, an internal, like I think a lot of what I do kind of architecturally in my practice is kind of like locating, you know, these oscillations between interior and exterior places and the personal and the social, like those kind of like, um, they're not dualisms, but they're somehow like super interrelated. And in that other performances, we've been super like focusing on this like internal space and using instruments that only kind of make like resonances in themselves and then when you kind of put a contact mic on them you can access this internal space and Marie writes beautiful text about kind of like this internal bodily experience so yeah I think definitely something happens between us when we collaborate which is you know more than the sum of our parts for sure. Um, I guess I was thinking about it in terms of I feel like I came to your work through what is Open School East and what you're developing there and I th there was this kind of element of uh, broadcast and projection so these internal voices or these kind of it felt like there were quieter voices you had to find things and then it was about this kind of broadcast uh, of the personal into the social space um, is that something that have I understood that correctly and is that something that you kind of develop within your own personal you're currently working on with your personal practice I think there's a little bit of this kind of like subterranean that goes on throughout my work and because I work in things really long form, I'm quite interested in what happens when you pay close attention to things. What happens when you just sit with them for a while and where does that take you? And, you know, like when you're researching something, even if it's like nothing to do with art, like you go on these little wormholes and you discover things that you completely don't intend. But because of where you started, it starts kind of drawing a network between them. So I'm quite interested in like, you know, those little subterranean pathways and what happens when you kind of bring them up to the surface and like kind of point and conjoin them all together. And sometimes that subterranean is like personal. It's, it's kind of sentiments or thoughts or kind of political motivations that don't often like get that chance to be broadcast, to be talked about, to have that like public space. And sometimes I guess it's a little bit, kind of the reverse like this kind of broadcast back into the body back into the interior but mostly I think it's not unidirectional but it's mostly kind of like looking and like kind of bringing the interior whether it's like an architectural interior a bodily interior a kind of mental interior and like looking at what happens when you bring that into an exterior space somehow you also work with um you collaborate in sort of a musical sense so mm. i recently saw you perform with johnny moore and you uh, were providing the bass um, <laughs> i think the bass guitar is the most interesting instrument because it's kind of you're the linchpin between the heavy rhythm like the drum beat and the kind of melody and vocals and i was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how maybe in terms of i'm really bad at music um, but talking a little bit about how you kind of see that side role and, and how performing with people in that way is different to what you yeah. do or connected? Um, <laughs> I mean, that's definitely a side hustle. Like that's something that I, um, so I, my original training was in music and I hated it. Like when I was studying it formally at a conservatory, my, I really like the whole experience was so fraught because in conservatoriums you have people who've worked their whole life to like get there they're very skilled but they're also in a place of like enormous like <laughs> um enormous privilege and you've got people telling you that you're the best but you also fear that you're absolutely not the best like you kind of you know if you at all have any kind of sense of self-awareness so it's very competitive it was also the one that I went to and I'm not sure whether this is common to all conservatoriums but I can imagine it would be it was super misogynistic and I was way too young to understand like what that felt like or what that meant you know so after studying music for that long I like wanted nothing to do with it essentially I got into radio I started getting into documentary I moved to video I was working in a production company for ages like it just didn't want it as a part of my life and once in a while I'd still play piano but it was like 
it wasn't at all what I wanted to be identified with. And then I retrained. I did an MA in sound art. And then I went to open school East and was like, yeah, this art bag's quite good. Yeah, it seems like a good fit. And then in the past couple of years, somehow that like sense of playing with people and communicating with people in a completely nonverbal way. I've found a way to like get past the trauma of those, you know, three years of studying it in that environment and be like, actually, I really like it. And there's something that I, I, I absolutely love playing other people's music. I love playing my own music, but I love playing other people's music and just like stepping back and essentially playing a function in someone else's, you know, dream, whatever. Um, so that's kind of how like, you know, playing bass in a band, like with Jenny and I have like another band where I play bass in as well. But it's also probably worth saying that the way I get around like that whole like ooh, rigidity of like, is like I don't really play bass. Like I can play bass because I have that musical training, but like I'm not good at it, you know, like I can, I can kind of like sing the notes and find where they are in the bass. So there's something again about like, I feel really comfortable when it's not like my main thing. I quite like that. But it's so nice to play bass because, like you said, you're, like, supporting. You're not – you're important, but you're not the thing. And I love that, yeah. At the same time, it's this kind of – I feel that there's this kind of very um, – there's, like, a human rhythm, mm. like a, a natural biological rhythm to the things that I've experienced that you've done. They're not kind of this, you know, metronome. It's not this kind of – it makes you sound like I'm saying you're not a good musician or something, but it's not like about precision. It's mm. about conversation yeah. through sound. It's, it's how I've sort of thought about things that I've yeah. experienced that you've made. Um, or maybe so it's, it feels a bit more like... Um, it feels a bit more um, generative mm. than it does sort of produced. So I guess... One of the main things that I do, which we haven't spoken about, is National Anthems, which is this whole research project where I'm looking into... I'm using National Anthem as, like, a little key to look into what national, nationalism means in a globalised context. Mm. And kind of playing around with that and playing around with, like, of these forms of, like, lyricism and um, kind of Western musical tropes and reimagining them. So some of the stuff that I do for that is really, really generative. Like the, I did, um, <laughs> it's embarrassing not to be able to remember the name of your own works. My Country, My Love, My Sadness, which was when I worked with like an online microworking site to ask people to generate their own lyrics for national anthems. And the reason that I was interested in that, apart from the fact that I've been researching these microworking websites and how parasitic and precarious they are for a whole year or so, I just thought it's really, like, it's held up as, like, the epitome of a globalised, networked workforce. But actually, geographically, they're really centred in terms of, like, where that workforce actually is. Supposedly it's around the world, but mostly it's still in kind of, like, the global east. So having this invitation for people to make national anthems that are supposedly part of, like, an online, you know, nation was really interesting to me. So I had no control. Like, the offer was what I had control over and the, you know, what I chose to pay them was what I had control over. But I actually had no control about what came back. And for me, making work out of that in this kind of pseudo-generative way is really interesting. I like kind of pushing things out and not having so much control over what comes back but in another context I was working with a different kind of it's maybe super boring to go into but a, a software that used to be used in archiving for sonic material that's too fragile to be played so say in the British Library you have this like amazing tinfoil recording but if you played it you would ruin it so they came up with this scanning technology to make a topography out of the recording and then I mean science right they lift from that they lift the sounds so I wanted to reverse that to kind of make topographies sound like to hear what the landscape actually has to say about the national anthem and especially for anonymous territories that don't have nation state status so like, listening to that and with that there are so many compositional kind of decisions that I made 
along the way where it's I guess it's maybe a little bit more produced somehow mm. there's there's a lot of chance along the way which means that you have to make decisions and the sound work that comes out is kind of like I mean it's a drone work essentially because the curvatures of the like land don't really um you know vary that greatly so I guess it really depends what project I'm working on and how long I'm working on it as to like what what that relationship between like composed produced and something that's more generative and of chance is happening there I guess with those um those kind of longer form projects um do you sort of see is there a kind of rhythm to how they surface publicly or do you feel like they're kind of constant I think they surface from opportunity probably it's probably quite a like practical thing mm-hmm. that you know releases the next iteration I mean the my country my love my sadness came about because I had a residency at space studios and that was what seemed interesting to develop at that time in my practice in that space so it's probably I, I think the public moments are probably more to do with like the opportunities and who like invites you to do things and I also have a performance lecture that come kind of like draws a map between all these different like parts of you know the research that I've done that when someone invites me to talk like often you know that's another chance to kind of like realize another iteration of that so it's probably super practical things um I was speaking to a Korean documentary maker and she was talking about like I don't know she she just had a really nice way of putting it where she was saying it's not about objectivity in any way it's about like sitting with something long enough that you're getting this close attention and she really seemed saw that as like a reaction to kind of like the world we live in just sitting with something long enough to give it a bit of close attention to give it you know that TLC of your own brain and your own connections and then sharing that with people and I just I've held on to that completely because I think that that's what I like to do. There's a project that I'm doing. It's a, another residency. It's in Margate with a place called Resort Studios and the invitation from them was really open. I was like, well, I'm just going to talk to people for ages and just giving again making another space where you can kind of have these interactions that don't happen in your everyday experience. You just make this little bubble where you can have an interaction that's quite candid or unexpected somehow and you're giving everything that close attention and I don't know not racing to understand everything in like one go or racing to show that you understand everything in one go. So as you describe it there's kind of this investment it's like an emotional labor investment in your work. You would um so the I'm raising my eyebrows, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's there's I I as I as I again trying to sort of think through the thing the different things that I've seen because I feel like I I can recognize your work but I feel like it has so many different kind of outcomes. The idea of um listening to people mm. st- feels really like something that I've kind of seen in everything you do because you're collaborative because you have these side projects because you're in the same way that when you invite people to give you lyrics you're going to listen to them you're saying that I'm an ear mm. for what you're saying and that I might shape it but I'm going to take on what you're saying i mean this is maybe the first time that i've kind of thought about this in this way so bear with me but when i worked in radio when i was a little bed um that means like when i was younger <laughs> we got like radio training so as a presenter when you interview people to actually like really listen to what they're saying and like have that go somewhere because apparently when people listen on the radio they don't really remember much of what's said they remember the stories behind it so if there's not a story then essentially what you've just done for 15 minutes or whatever is lost so you have to kind of make sure that you're responding to the person in the room so i think that's when and i'm so thankful for it i became I guess schooled in just being like present in the moment and listening to what people are actually telling you and going from there. And then I mean, I did an MA under Samuel Salome Volen at um 
at LCC on the Sound Arts course and she's all about listening. Like she has a philosophy that is like so ingrained in um, a kind of phenomenological approach to listening and she was an amazing force in terms of like how you can appreciate the world through listening. And then recently I've been having sounds uh, conversations with another sound artist called Dan Scott. His PhD is all about like the social element of listening and he kind of sees it, sees it as, a, as an active kind of submission in a way, like when you listen to something because all of the rhetoric that we have around speech is that it's kind of, it's active. Like you can see when someone's speaking, communicating, but listening is communicating, but like it's kind of, it's a very um, slight act, I suppose. So all of those things, if I'm like joining them together on the spot, I suppose are things that are quite interested to me and comes back to that idea of like not privileging my own experience or my own opinions. Like obviously like I'm the one making the artworks, they're going to come out anyway. But like if we can kind of like muddle those, you know, with other inputs, whether that's some weird research that I'm doing online or someone specific that I'm speaking to or someone that I invite into my work, like, I feel like that's more interesting to me, this idea of listening to someone else. And then, like, the converse of that is this idea of making space for those subterranean voices or your own kind of, like, you know, subterranean kind of influence because I don't want it to be a completely passive role that I play, you know. Like, I think it's really important for female artists to not, you know, uh, go too far with that kind of like close attention, discreet actions. I think it's also important to have these moments where I'd, I'd sort of describe it as um, a, a filter is a proactive role, mm. um, and um, that's for me in terms of like collaboration and things like that. You you make the work, you shape the work by being a proactive filter, and you can still hear every voice. If you're good. Yeah. That would be the dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's all kind of like ethical, like logistical um, snacks in that as well. Mm. Because, you know, if you're like the conduit by which everything else is interpreted, like, mm. you know, you might be a bit of a douchebag potentially. So that'll, that'll come across. But, um, yeah, for me it's just uh, an interesting way of working, I suppose, like um, and I don't think that I always collaborate with people. I think sometimes I just straight up work with people. And I think for me that's a really um, important distinction to make as well. Sometimes I'm collaborating and sometimes I'm just working with people and sometimes it's like more networked and mm. sometimes you're, you know, working with someone else. Like they're the... I like those shifting hierarchies as well. So I also wanted to talk to you about play. Yeah. Because I think that uh, some of your work I've seen is very, very playful. Um, for example, uh, I know you best as a sound artist. You've recently made some sculpture. Yes. You kind of seem to be very up for trying things in different mediums. Um, and it seems to be sort of uh, led by what you're trying to achieve. Mm. Could you sort of talk about how you play with material from sound to the other kinds of materials that you work with? So for me, the sound was like my way in to art, essentially. Like that's where my skills were. That's what I was interested in. I'm still, I think all of my work across any like project collaboration, like sound is the in, like I'm thinking about the world through sound, mm. but I don't always make a sound work as like the object that kind of comes out of that. In fact, mostly I work in film. Um, and then I really like exploring other forms as well. And I'm really actively trying to do that with where I am right now, because as I said, I don't have like that um, step up from having like an art background like I haven't you know I didn't do a foundation I didn't do like an arts degree so I'm still kind of playing catch up a lot of the time with like different forms so I like to play around with that but somehow and I'm quite happy about this somehow like when you're thinking through ideas and like trying to think there's just like one day right when it clicks and you're like oh I'm gonna do this and it seems to make sense to you you know so I feel like the more kind of 
experience I can get in other forms, the more like opportunities that my brain will have to be like, oh, actually this. But um, I really like textiles, like just in my life, I find them really interesting objects. And I love like the folklore that's attached to um, the production of textiles. So that's something that I'm working with more and more. Um, and that started, I, I did a residency last year, maybe around this time last year, went to the Yorkshire Dales and there was a weaver on that residency called Hannah Waldron, who's like amazing. And we did some collaborative weaving and I loved it. And since then, like, I'm like, this is definitely something that I want to use in my practice. And then with Marie as part of SMT, we both um, are quite interested in things, having uh, something in, held within them internally that we can kind of like magnify and amplify. So now we're making things. So our um, most recent work was for um, a portrait for a screenplay of Beth Harmon which was curated by Tanzan Clark and Sean Edwards. And we made a score for a screenplay of Beth Harmon. And the idea with that instrument is that it is somehow like gesturally a score. It could be read as a score, but it was also like a sounding object. Like theoretically it could sound, even though the way that we've presented it, it's completely silent. And then yeah, a lot of the work that I've done with National Anthems is film-based and broadcast-based as well. So um, together with an architect, like, again, around this time last year, um, I did a multi-screen installation called Liminal States, and that had... It was kind of a little bit like a documentary that was playing out across five different screens, and they kind of came on and came off, and that would theoretically make the viewer need to kind of reposition themselves and there was also live broadcast happening in the room and those broadcasts were kind of competing with each other in terms of how they could occupy the space because when you have more than one kind of broadcast in a space it, it creates that static it creates that liminal space in between them where not one is kind of dominant so we were playing around with that form a lot and I really like broadcast technologies so yeah, I suppose that's a that's kind of like a potted history of like how I try and match the form to the intent of what I'm doing. But I'm definitely eager to get a little bit more of kind of like um, a material vocabulary under under my hands. There's also this kind of tension between you have this expertise, but you also some in some ways reject it and try and do things against what you've been taught is the right way to do things. So I sort of think in some ways there's this kind of element of play as in I know the rules, but I'm not necessarily going to follow them. Yeah, that's turned into a counselling session. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I suppose that's a really good observation as well. Thank you, Beth. Um, yeah, I think that's something that other people have picked up on in my work, this idea of like uh, indulging ignorance and indulging a lack of expertise and I think that comes from just a really like basic visceral rejection of elitism and kind of the derivation of a whole sense of self-worth over from expertise which um is just a bad vibe you know so yeah Maybe that's where it comes from or something more deeply seated <laughs> that we could go into it another time. But I think it's also more interesting for me to use art as a way to get at things I don't know. Mm. Like I know what I know. That's cool. But I mean, I guess that's why I stick with it because like it does allow you to go places that, you know, and interdisciplines that you're not familiar with. And I also think when I was first researching a lot of the stuff for national anthems. I was going down on these really weird wormholes and using technologies and information, which is 100% not designed for me. Like, it is not meant for me. It's meant for engineers and computer scientists that work for governments. And there's an enormous, like, gender and class kind of correlation that goes on with that. And I was just like, this is enough, you know, to carve out a space where I'm giving these technologies, I'm giving this information a bit of like, you know, my own interpretation and like drawing and just, you know, 
making a little bit of a like nest and a space for myself within those things that are completely foreign to me. So I suppose that's part of it. And another thing that other people have picked up on in my work is that I play the roles that outside are like, you know, I've never really belonged geographically in a place. So within my art, I kind of have this constant outsider role of like someone who's simultaneously trying to understand what's coming and like understand this context, but always from this kind of unskilled foreign perspective. And on the kind of flip side to that, there's a kind of joy in liveness and not knowing. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Um, okay, so yeah, I, I think I love, I love radio because of its liveness. It's so special. I, and even when I do, I mean, if I am doing a radio performance, it will always be live. If I'm doing a radio show and I have to pre-record it, I will never edit it. Like, I, I treat it as if it's live because I just, it creates such a different space and such a different context. And I also think when you invite someone into that space and that context, the rules are just different from daily life. You have different connections. And sometimes within that context, you like, you'd completely make a fool of yourself, which I think is fine. It's a bit cringeworthy. But yeah, I just love... I love that liveness and being in the moment because you actually really have to be present and that's maybe not my forte in other parts of my work and, I mean, everybody's got the same thing, like they're all trying to, like, make things fit together. So it's actually quite hard to be present, but I think making situations where you just have to 100% commit to the situation that you're in is quite nice, yeah. So... Yeah, the liveness is really important, even though it's not, again, like present in every articulation of my work. Mm. It would ne I would never lose that from my work, I don't think. Well, you mentioned earlier about national anthems and the idea of nationalism, mm. and you talk about yourself as having no place, so you, you see yourself as geographically unspecific. Mm. Um, did national anthems come out of an interest in nationalism from where you're from, or more broadly the idea of people having this national identity? I think the reasons that you start doing something are very different from the reasons that you keep doing something, yeah. right? And one kind of starts to overlap the other. But in my past life, so many past lives, I also um, studied international relations and that became quite formative to me and that's how I moved into documentary. Yeah. Um, and I suppose when I retrained and did that sound art, like course, somehow all of my different past lives came together. So it was a space for me to explore all of that stuff that I found really interesting in international relations. It was a place for me to use my skills in radio and music, but in a very different way. Um, and somehow, and also I guess in a way that I maybe undermine sometimes a little bit. It was a space for me to kind of consider my own agency and my own kind of like subjectivities within that. So I think National Anthems really naturally came out of those interests and I didn't see it as like a reflection of my own like national status, but I suppose there's something always like embedded within your experience of the world that makes you seek out specific, you know, things and the places that I've lived, nationalism has always been this very um, strong, pervasive, like assumed way of being in in so in like social contexts. It's also like completely parasitic of colonial structures and like the existence of empires that reproduce themselves in like you know different nefarious or sometimes like not so much nefarious, but just like blithe, actually, um, ways. So I suppose it was a way of thinking through that experience. So I'm not sure, again, it's kind of like the longevity of projects. I think like when you've got that like long, <laughs> long form attention to something, like the, it's hard for me to kind of remember the original intention. And I think it was actually a lot more by chance mm. than anything else, you know, it feels both receptive and critical mm. of the concept of nationalism, which I've, I found interesting in the work. It was um, 
you're not denying that these things are important, but you're thinking critically about how they could be different. Mm. Um, and I guess I was wondering if there were key moments where you felt like, oh, this project has momentum. This really interesting thing has happened and I want to keep pursuing it. It's not so much like a momentum, but it's more like I was just attracted back to it. And, you know, and again, it's I suppose it's the way that I work. I'm open. I'm very like easy to be led down a wormhole. Essentially, it's like I'm easily led astray. So like it just continually um, maintained being interesting for me, and there seemed to be like different iterations of it. So I wasn't really that when I started kind of exploring it. It was because I saw that technology I was speaking about earlier, the one that scans topography. I saw it on a um, tour of the British Library Archive, the sound archive that they have in the basement there. And just like that came into my head immediately. I was like, but what if you use that technology to do something completely different with it? And then from there, you know, I started exploring these other things. I really somehow got interested in um, microworking and Mechanical Turk and this like decentralised population of workers that are supposed to exist without national boundaries and really looking at like a globalised nationalism like seems really interesting to me because I am interested in it. And then, I don't know, it's like, it'd be really good to like for me to like sit down one day and like draw like how I became interested in all of these things. But I suppose... It comes again from that, you know, little thing that I've kind of like latched onto of this close attention to detail. Mm. Once you kind of subjugate yourself to spending time with something, you will be taken places that aren't in your own control. And that, for me, like is what remains interesting about it. I guess it's that the way you say, uh, you say pay attention, I would say spend time with. Mm. And you, you can't be completely against something if you're saying it's worthy of spending time with you are giving it a platform you are raising its profile in people's minds and you're creating an adapted form of it and saying in some ways you're kind of making it as a proposal it's a mm. proposition but it's also a proposal for how you represent you could still maintain a kind of sense of nationalism for these decentralized people so you're not rejecting the idea you're trying to think through why it exists in the first place and what it could be um, and I'm just sort of interested in the idea of, again, in terms of listening, not rejecting, but being open to things. I think listening is really interesting just like as a, um, as a way of thinking about time, actually. I mean, for Matt editing this, he's going to have to sit down and like listen to it. He's going to have to, there's no way that you can, because, you know, when you read something, you can scan through the document, you know, like when you're listening something or when you're seeing something performed, when you're doing anything that's time-based, you really like have to spend time with it. And sometimes if, you know, you're stressed and you go to a performance, like that can be an agonising experience actually, like spending time with something when your head is like racing a million miles an hour. But I think listening is that, right? You're spending, spending. Yeah, you're, it's an interest. I've never really thought about how that's called spending time. You're taking time. Mm. Yeah, I think that listening, even without the fact that I'm a sound artist, like, that listening is <laughs> obviously like kind of like borrowed its way into the way that I approach things more generally. I also think that I'm, a, I'm a, can be a bit dense. Like it takes me a long time to like come to come to how I understand things, which is why I also like to invite other people into the thing because I really like I get a bit too emo, you know, when I find things, and also with the kind of um, stuff that somehow I'm interested in and I'm compelled towards. It's quite horrible yeah. like content a lot of it like and kind of looking into these things that we're all implicit in and um you know at the end of it's not it's not like a dreamy dreamy research project mm -hmm. by any means so I think that's another thing that I've had to reconcile with myself like how much time I spend with these like exploitative platforms mm -hmm. or very grotesque forms of nationalism that come across through xenophobia and racism and for liminal states I when I was doing a lot of the research within national anthems I became very interested in anomalous territories so these places that don't quite fit within um, this nation state system that we're still working within and found this place in the north of Morocco called Malia which is Spanish territory 
owned by Spain and it's an old port town. It's got this huge, like, you know, the Spanish army, huge, like, history behind it. But and now it's essentially like this kind of loophole. The whole territory is like a loophole that relates to EU borders and the fortification of EU borders, but it's also got a very weird kind of tertiary um, economy going through the borders on the back of Moroccan workers, all of these textiles, and creates a huge industry. They're worth billions of euros. And I just became obsessed with this place. And then for um, Liminal States, the curators were generous enough for to pay for me to go there. And Emma Letizia Jones, the architect I was working with, came along as well. And I'm so glad she did because it was a horrible place. Like, you know, you can know conceptually that a place is going to be overrun with police and Guardia Civil and, like, border agency, that it's going to be really violent at the border because that is one of the most violent borders and violent architectural borders Mm -hmm. as well. But, like, to actually, again, spend time with it and to, like, be there, it was horrible. Like, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't wish anyone to go there, actually. And um, I guess what I'm saying is you have to be open to it being, if you're spending time with something, you have to be open to the idea that it's not going to be necessarily a rewarding experience Mm -hmm. for you to spend time with it. But somehow I'm still compelled by these things. I still Mm -hmm. return to them and... I think that's because I'm trying to, in my mind, figure them out, you know, yeah. understand them. Also, it kind of triggered for me with the, um, the idea of water and trauma that you were talking about, where um, I guess you were thinking about bodies in water, but you are also thinking how, how it developed because it became about the water. So yeah. you were sort of had this very difficult idea in the centre, but then you kind of looked at what's around it and thought about how to... Um, how to turn it into something that you could use as material. And again, with that idea of filtering and the idea of the artist and how they kind of convey experience, I felt like that sort of resonated with how I understood you were working with material of nationalism. Um, Do you see a connection there? They're actually a lot more related than it seems because all of the territories that I've been looking into, anomalous territories where this idea of globalism and nationalism is like really rubbing up against each other usually they're old colonial outposts like it's really you know there's no post-colonialism in kind of like the places that I'm um, researching and because of the way that colonialism works they're usually port towns so actually like the water has been a really like ever-present kind of part of national anthems and thinking about it and I'm quite interested in thinking about water as a territory unto itself and oceans especially the Mediterranean Sea you know that used to be kind of more important like the port towns belonged to the Mediterranean Mm. rather than to the nations themselves so there's that really strong link there Um, I also because I'm interested in those oscillations between things, like I'm really interested in these spaces that happen in between them. The mm. the third space is kind of like that French um, feminist theory kind of goes, but like this liminal bit in between that doesn't belong to one thing nor the other. And um, the invitation was kind of because of my my treatment of kind of liminal spaces. And when... Paul and I were working on the hypersea. Um, we were very lucky to find this um, text on hydrofeminism, which I found through like someone's Facebook post because they were doing a residency in Scotland or you know whatever. It was like super by chance, mm. but it somehow really anchored us into this idea of the water. And then I suppose you're right, like the kind of space from there is that we went in different directions and thought about it from different angles and found these amazing weather forecasting websites where you can track the ocean's currents and really think about, like, a a body that isn't a human body as as a networked entity that is not part of one thing but also isn't part of everything. You know, it's not everything, it's not nothing. It's like, that sounds really blithe to say it in that way, but... Um, that's kind of our starting point from there. 
And then, yeah, I did something um, recently this year. I screened a new video work and performed the score to it live at Outpost in Norwich. And that is called Paradise Island. And it's based on an island in the Bahamas, which is just so weird. Like, you couldn't make this stuff up for some of the territories that I look into. Um, But again, the ocean is somehow, even though everything happens on the land, like the way that kind of humans exert their influences on the land, it all happens through the ocean that surrounds it. So I think that's probably quite interesting to me at the moment, thinking about flows and um, Marie and I are also working on the idea of the hypersea at the moment, but also thinking about it in terms of like, you know, this very romantic kind of Pablo Neruda idea of a sea as a constant present. It's constantly the same, but it's never, it's always changing, you know. It's like, it's quite a useful kind of way to think about so many things because it's never static, but somehow always the same, but not the same. And like, how how does it hold on to to histories and how does that like affect our interpretation of time in relation to sound as well. Mm. Like sound has that same like constant presence. Everything's gone, but everything's always there. And Mm. I really like that about radio as well. Like radio waves are like gone, but they're still around. Like they're kind of like bouncing between Mars and Jupiter, you know. So everything that you put out in terms of radio waves somehow always exists, but simultaneously is completely ephemeral. Do you think it's um, important that, that your work is shown in a gallery space that people spend time with it and can make these connections or do you want people to kind of experience things online and kind of look back and, and listen in their own time or do you want to control the space and kind of point people more directionally? Yeah, I think it really depends on the project. Some, sometimes I'm really happy with that exhibition format. I think it's fantastic. Mm. Like, I think it's really nice and also you have a space with which you can host things. That's one of the nicest things, I think, about doing a show or about doing a series is that you can host things and people (laughs) can kind of come together for different reasons. So I think that seems super relevant for some projects I do. Um, A kind of heavier hand where you're controlling the space and... I suppose with the SMT um, work, Horrid Little Hands, that seemed like quite important that we had 100% ownership over over that space and did that through the sound. And then other times I'm so happy for it to be just, you know, a series of talks that like I'm not even like at the centre of. Mm. That seems like the best way to kind of get at the idea. Yeah, I suppose it. I would really like to kind of continue working in that way where some things exist online and that's cool mm. and some things exist in the world and that's cool and some things just exist in people's experience of that moment and that's cool. It's in the same way of, I guess, the way you were talking about materials of just being able to like somehow in the moment ascertain like what's the right, what's the right platform for that. Just almost describe it as um, in the way that you... I think you filter responsibly and you think about the voices and, and, and how you work with things. It's almost like um, sometimes there needs to be affective storytelling and sometimes there needs to be kind of presentation and platforming. Mm. And they're quite different, but I see, I've seen your work in both formats. I think, I think that's a real skill to be able to not only present something, but also be generous in that invitation and think like what is someone getting out of this like and not to pander to their expectation but definitely to be generous Mm. in that invitation of because essentially all we're doing is like putting out stuff that we find interesting and hoping that like someone else is like huh yeah cool you know like um so making that invitation as generous as possible is like the ideal but sometimes obviously you know whatever reasons kind of crop up and you're not able to make that decision but that would be the dream to kind of like really nail that I guess because when you're talking about complicated networks and ways of presenting you know um also kind of you're you're talking about conflict you're saying things that people might disagree with and that I think takes quite an exceptional um ability to host conflicting opinions Mm. and um present them in a way where it's not judgmental but you can kind of move through ideas and keep 
you know, nuancing what you're saying while you're doing it. Yeah, I think that's actually something really important to uh, maybe a life philosophy, but also the, the stuff that I have in my work is that I think it's so important to be able to disagree. Mm. And it's so important to set up structures where people can publicly disagree. Um, because in those structures, people will still disagree, but there's like, there's something like that kind of then gets rooted within you and you take it home and you have that chance to kind of like, like nuance is another way of like spending time with things, mm. isn't it? And I suppose all of my research is kind of bound by these things that are not dichotomies, they're not dualisms, like everything is just so intertwined like and codependent that contradictions and like hypocrisies are just part of everything that we do and say. Um, and I think that's really, to me, interesting but also important to explore in a public context, whether it's through the showing of a work or, you know, a public forum like you said, to be able to create a space where you can just, like, indulge a little bit in those. I think hypocrisy is, is slightly unfair but also completely true. I think, like, the way that we move through life has to be slightly compromised and hypocritical because we're part of structures that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily choose to be a part of and that filters down into absolutely everything. There's a really nice, like, Deborah Levy, I think it's, it's in one of her novels and she's talking about, she's talking about grapefruits, essentially. I can't really explain it very well without kind of like reading it, but it's essentially like an interaction between a young woman and the person who's serving her in South Africa. And the person who's serving her is talking about kind of the legacy of South African apartheid and is talking about the food that's on her plate at the time. And somehow she just gets to the point that, like, she's the character is really frustrated and she's point, yeah, at this point because she's like, even the fucking grapefruits are political. But I think, you know, that's so true. Like, mm. you, every small decision that we make has this, like, contradiction within it that it's nice sometimes to make space to unpick it rather than feel shameful and um, embarrassed by it, which I think is, like, our go-to <laughs> reaction, shame. But like internalized shame, where people are like, "I don't want to." Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a sort of simultaneity between um, people kind of acknowledging that there's more they can do, but the idea that you can win a debate mm. rather than meeting at a moment of compromise. The idea that you could um, chuck out someone's opinion, like long held, reasoned, thought through with your, you could replace that. Mm. And I think that's always very strange when I think about the idea of my understanding of what conversation is. Mm. There's, I'm, again, I'm not going to get it right, but there's some method which is, <laughs> this is going to come across super dodgy, but it's essentially like rhetoric. Like when you're engaging in a debate and this is like how you're supposed to like learn how to put like debates in written form and kind of argue your case, like, there's, I don't know whether it's like Socratic, but some ancient Greek kind of idea that if you're going into a debate, if you're going into a conversation, you must be just as willing to be convinced of someone else's side of it than to want to put over your own. And that's kind of, that would be great if everybody could stick to that. That would be great if I could stick to that, you know, even in <laughs> my daily interactions. But Again, that seems somehow important whenever you're creating space to kind of allow that potential to come out. I think it's super hard in art to do that because everything is very based on the project. It has this, like, finite end. There's not necessarily, like, um, an invitation or even a willingness for things to extend beyond, like, the climax of the project, and that's a constant frustration. But I think it's, like, something really nice to have in mind. Hi, welcome back. Uh, that was Sophie Mallet talking to me in her studio. Thank you very much for listening and thank you, Sophie, for being a fantastic contributor. Thanks to you, Beth. Thanks so much for doing the podcast. We've got more podcasts from you in the future um, and I'm really excited about them. And thanks to you, listener, for listening. 
and we'll see you next time. Bye. And we'll hear you next time. That's C is fine, isn't it? Yeah, C because they're not gonna. We're not gonna hear them. No, that's true. But then we we won't see them either. We won't see them. But I think hearing is weirder. Okay. Should we do buys together? <laughs> like <laughs> vibe bye. for bye. Bye. Oh, you! I was going for the big ending. Oh.